Welcome, everybody, to Both Laugh, the Dying Scene Quarantine Chat Show. As always, I'm your host, Jay Stone, and we are up to episode 53. And uh, this is a really fun episode, if I may be so bold, um, because we timed it just right. And in fact, we were supposed to record this episode a day prior to when we actually recorded it. Uh, but we had to move it back a day because our guest just happened to be awarded the number one selling album in all of the United Kingdom, uh, his home country. I, of course, am speaking about Frank Turner. He's got a brilliant new album out. It is called FTHC, which if you've been a longtime fan of Frank's or the genre, you know that that stands for Frank Turner Hardcore. Um, the album's got a bit of a double or perhaps even triple meaning, uh, which we talk about on the episode. And uh, this was a lot of fun. Um, as you'll as you'll learn during the episode, uh, Dying Scene has been following Frank Turner for as long as Dying Scene has been a thing. And actually, they predate me. Um, I first learned of Frank Turner through Dying Scene mentioning uh, Poetry of the Deed, which was his album that came out in 2009. And coincidentally, it came out on my 30th birthday. Uh, so I remember thinking, oh, that's fun. That guy, and he's from England and half of my family is English. So, uh, you know, that must be, he must be all right. Uh, turns out he is. I started writing for the site about a year and a half, a year or so later. And uh, England Keep My Bones became one of the first albums that I um, reviewed, I think, for Dying Scene or got a review copy of at least. And in my family, between myself, my wife and my daughter, who was three when that album came out, we probably played the album uh, 70 million times. Uh, we, we, we've been longtime fans of Frank Turner in this house. We've seen him a bunch. He's uh, met my daughter a few times, but nice enough to say hi and take pictures. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's been really cool to watch his rise and to sort of be there from, uh, I wouldn't say the passenger seat, but, you know, the back seat of a extended conversion van or something like that. Like, I feel like we've been along for the ride and it's been a fun ride. We were there for a lot of his big events in this country. Um, our, our pal AP from the dying scene radio podcast shot his show with Lucero at red rocks a couple of years back. Uh, I've been lucky enough to shoot some of at the time, his biggest headlining shows, including at Aganis arena here in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, shot him at uh, Boston Calling, which was an outdoor festival, which was which was gigantic. Uh, and I think the first time I interviewed Frank uh, was on the steps at City Hall Plaza in Boston, uh, just prior to his going on stage at Boston Calling, and that was uh, that was a fun time. If you're if you're a longtime fan of Frank Turner, you've probably just skipped ahead past the theme song, and you're not even listening to me. But you know that Frank is pretty. Um, uh, he's kept track of every show he's ever played in numerical order. Uh, if I have done the same thing for uh, all of the shows that I've been to and also all of the interviews that I've done. Uh, and so uh, Frank was number 30 back in 2014. He was number 53 back in 2015. He was number 63 the following year. He was number 114 just prior to Lost Evenings in Boston, Poetry of the Deed Night, coincidentally. And now he's interview number 176 in my illustrious unpaid career as a pretend rock and roll journalist. Uh, it makes for episode 53 of Both Laugh. This might be my favorite episode to date. We had a lot of fun. Uh, we talk about the whole album, which, as I've said, is um, brilliant. 
it is it is quite a feat to get to the ninth album in your solo career and have that album be your best. Um, and while I do have a soft spot for England, keep my bones. Uh, this one's pretty good. Um, it's the most punk rock, if I can use that word in air quotes that you can't see. Um, it is the most punk rock record of his to date, at least as a solo record. Um, it's got all sorts of influences that range that you can hear from um, Descendants to Black Flag to The Hold Steady. There's some clear, I think, Fat Mike uh, influences on some of the tracks. Um, it's got it's got songs that deal with cocaine addiction. It's got songs that deal with anxiety and therapy. It's got songs that deal with um, his childhood and the particularly unhappy parts, like being shipped to boarding school. It's got songs about his father, uh, who many of you probably know uh, came out as a trans woman and has been living as Miranda for the last several years and subsequently has gone a long way to repairing his relationship with Frank. Um, it's got a song called Wave Across the Bay, which is a hard song for me to listen to uh, because it deals with Scott Hutchison, the lead singer of Frightened Rabbit, who uh, took his life back in 2018. Um, it's also got I know punches and perfect score and that combo may be my favorite combo back to back of any on the in the Frank Turner catalog. Uh, punches is arguably one of my favorite songs by anybody. I know it's uh, it's a little early to say that. Um, it's got a song called Farewell to My City, which has him walking through London just prior to moving out of it. And it brought me to a weird headspace involving my own great grandfather when uh, he left London 100 years prior. Um, it's a really great album. It's going to be on repeat for a long time in this house. Uh, it's going to get the hell toured out of it too over the next couple of years. Um, be ready. If you're listening to this on Monday, which is President's Day in the United States, which is a bullshit holiday, I will give you that. Uh, it's it, There's a big announcement coming tomorrow. Let's put it that way on Tuesday. Um, it's it's going to be it's going to be huge. It's going to be massive. You're going to want to be paying attention if you're a Frank Turner fan. Um, but for now, here is uh, episode 53. Both laugh. The Dying Scene Quarantine chat show. It is coming to you right after the intro music. If this is your first time listening, our intro song is music by a band called Kali Masi. They're from Chicago. They're one of my favorites. It's a song. Uh, called Hurts to Laugh. You should get their last album. It's called Laughs. It came out last year and it's effing brilliant. Um, check it out. The lady says recording in progress. So that means it's time for episode 53 of Both Laugh, the Dying Scene Quarantine chat show. I am really fired up uh, about today's guest. He probably needs no introduction because we've been covering him uh, at Dying Scene for literally as long as Dying Scene has been a thing. Um, but I will say this. I've done a lot of interviews in my time, but I've never done one with the current owner of the newly minted number one album on the UK charts. Frank Turner, thanks for coming. <laughs> thanks for doing this show. 
My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, as we were discussing just before we got started, uh, I mean, first of all, yes, uh, we did. We got the number one yesterday, as we're talking now. But secondly, as you might imagine, I celebrated a little last night. So um, <laughs> if my train of thought is a little more circuitous than usual, I pray that you and listeners will forgive. I think it's quite all right. I think everybody understands. And, and frankly, I think everybody's probably really excited for you. Well, thank you. I, I, I'm pretty excited for myself. I mean, it's, it's a strange situation because, like, I think like a lot of people, I didn't, I sort of aggressively didn't care about the charts when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, it was right. almost like it was a point of pride to me that I didn't like any of the bands who were in the charts or even know who they were or whatever. Um, so there is a tiny adolescent part of me that's still in rebellion against recent events. You know what I mean? It's right, right. Like, but at the same time, um, you know, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Oh, absolutely. I don't give a shit. Well, uh, what I was going to say was at the same time, fuck everybody. Do you know right. what I mean? It's like we, right. we fucking did it and, and I am proud of it. it. Does it, maybe I'm projecting a little bit because uh, I tend to have a lot of time on my hands and it's what I do, but does it feel I could I could imagine a situation where it feels more fulfilling for FTHC to be your first number one album because there are a lot of influences on the album. A, it's your ninth album, so that in and sure. of itself to have your first number one at number nine is is batshit crazy, truthfully. Indeed. Um, yeah. But I, I think that people always talk about your influences and you've talked a lot about your influences and certainly there's a bunch of them on this album, both lyrically and stylistically, but I feel like the biggest influence... Uh, on this album, if I'm if I'm not blowing smoke up your ass, is yourself, is Frank Turner. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very much a Frank Turner album. It, yeah, sure, sort of absolutely. Quintessential yeah. sense, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. And I mean, the, the title is many things, but among other things, it's almost as it's as close as I can comfortably get to having a self-titled record. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm not actually going to call the record Frank Turner. That's ridiculous. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would say that one of the things I tried to do with this record was let my first instincts have free reign, you know, um, and not try and sort of push it in any direction other than where it was going to go anyway. And just for a lot of my career, you know, I've made music that's kind of punk rock with an adjective attached to it. And there's a lot of times when I kind of I'll walk up to an idea and then deliberately try and sidestep it one way or the other, you know, just sort of to, to, to make sure I'm not doing anything too obvious, I suppose. Right, and, right. and this time around, it's not that I think this is an obvious record musically, but it was just like, stop trying to like make it weird. Do you know what I mean? Stop trying to, <laughs> stop, stop, stop trying to kind of like... Um, uh, you know, just change it up for the sake of it or whatever. It was like, just let it go, let it be how it wants to be. And it was a really satisfying experience. I also think that the end result is not particularly generic or obvious, which is kind of a relief almost in a way. But um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of kind of... Um, a uh, lot of the punk rock and indeed this is a, a word that hasn't been used enough in discussing this record emo in the old fashioned sense of the mm -hmm, word mm -hmm. you know what I mean like when Absolutely. emo used to mean um, you know early Gallup Kids or Boys That's Fire or you know even Sunny Day that kind of stuff there's a fair right. amount of that in the mix as well oh there absolutely is especially lyrically and I, I, emo has become such a well I feel like it was an accepted thing and then the term became such a like a dirty word <laughs> but yeah I, I mean i feel yeah, like there's a bit of a renaissance going on there is well i mean we, i'm now at that age where things that i remember the first time around are edging into being retro which mm -hmm. is sort of simultaneously hilarious and terrifying um <laughs> do you know what i mean it's yeah, yeah, just right. kind of like are you fucking serious like we're having an emo revival right now um and apparently we are so <laughs> who, who <laughs> and, knew the, and the whole the whole like album reunion thing and like 
I was I, so I was at the uh, last evening show in Boston when you did Poetry mm. of the Deed, which yeah. and that, we actually spoke on the phone a few minutes before that, and because that album came out on my thirtieth birthday. So right. that meant the 10th anniversary was my 40th birthday. And then so it right. puts this, it does this weird sort of perspective thing. Yeah, yeah, sure. When, I apologize. But you're like, <laughs> like, like not only that album didn't come out when I was a kid, it came out when I turned 30. So. Yeah, 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 totally. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, there, I mean, it's a funny thing, like the, the records, this new record is not a concept record, but there are themes and, and in, in a way that has happened to me before, but more so this time around, I quite often figure out what the themes of my writing are in the process of doing press for a record, because I have to talk about it quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, right. and, you know, it's not really the thing that I'm thinking about when I'm making it, but there's definitely a theme in this record of kind of like, not just not just kind of getting a little older, but sort of trying to find some acceptance in that, you know, um, uh, because ultimately, you know, a aging is, is linear and is, is inarguable and it's it's non-negotiable and you can react, react to it in any number of ways. And one way of reacting to it is with kind of sort of desperation and rejection and sort of furiously trying to pretend you're 25 for the rest of your life. And there's something undignified about that to me. And I'm, I'm trying to find a way of going about the business of I've turned 40 in December. I'm going about that with some kind of some grace. Some grace and style. So here we are. So I wanted to take uh, a minute before we get too in detailed into the album and all that mm. to, to sort of start. I normally start these podcasts. So this podcast itself started during quarantine, basically as a, as mm -hmm. a way to, talk to people who had their plans canceled and just sort of had to sure. pivot to new things. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but before we do that, I wanted to actually start um, with a, with a bit of gratitude. Cause I feel like you've always been gracious uh, with your time. Like I was sort of intimating earlier, we've been covering Frank Turner since 2009 when dying scene started. And I was only a reader of the site back then. And frankly, I think I learned about Frank Turner through the press for poetry. <laughs> uh, nice. and, and I remember thinking, Oh, that's funny. Like that album comes out on my birthday. Well, this guy's got to be okay. And then uh, <laughs> that and is we, why we chose the release date. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> projecting. Um, and then, so I started writing for the site in 2011. And I think that I know that one of the first albums that I got as a press thing to sort of do a review of was England Keep My Bones. Sure. And I remember putting that album on. And I think in my family, we wore the groove out of that record. I remember <laughs> thinking this is but it was unlike anything I had really ever heard. And yet it felt so familiar at the same time. And my Thank kid you. loved it. And she was like three. So, and I will tell <laughs> you, it's a, it's a little strange to have your child singing uh, at three years old, uh, if you <clears throat> the, the steal the land of an Englishman, then you will know this curse. Your firstborn yeah, sure, son, sure. your firstborn born son's warm blood will run. Like that's a really bizarre thing when you're three. Um, <laughs> but I, I, br briefly, I do remember doing press, doing a, doing a signing for that record, and a, 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 a sort of four year old child got put on a table in front of me, who then just shouted, "There is no god at me." And I remember, <laughs> I remember thinking to myself, "I'd better be right about this, or else I'm in deep yeah, trouble." Yeah, seriously, that's a lot of therapy in the yeah, future, uh, right? <laughs> but uh, but you've always been gracious with your time both for me personally and for the site and i feel like for a lot of fans in general and that that's a thing that i think gets lost uh in in this community a little bit we've been privileged to shoot a bunch of your uh i think some really amazing shows one of our guys shot red okay. rocks a couple years ago mm. i obviously did uh again arena which was five years ago yesterday which yeah i saw that was, my facebook memories which is another, wild i know another bane of my existence but yeah it was, <laughs> it, was it was nice to relive it's a blessing and a curse that facebook yeah, memories yeah, yeah, thing yeah absolutely uh, 
but so so really just genuinely thanks for for oh well thank you it, that's very kind of you to say it's it feels like we've been able to sort of witness the frank turner rise uh to the to having the number one album in the land uh it was sort of <laughs> sort of in a in like a passenger seat so it's it's a really cool well, thank thing. you so thank you thank you um i know that the uh, sort of album release cycle is always go, 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 go. And sure. I know that it's a lot of work and it can be tiring, but does it feel different now coming out of two years of, by Frank Turner standards, relative uh, inactivity or comparatively less busy? Because yeah, sure. Uh, well, it's been a different form of busy, I guess I would say. Um, you know, and life has changed a lot for me in the last years as it has for everybody else. And sure. um, we'll obviously see where we go from here. It's, it's a funny thing. Like um, the last time around that I was in anything approaching a chart battle, which was for the album Be More Kind, one that we lost, I might add. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, well, we came second, you know. Right. Uh, but um, the, I, I remember that was going on while I was on tour and while it was in the run-up to Lost Evenings 2. And funnily enough, it was uh, around that moment in time when Scott Hutchison passed away uh, right. from Frank Rabbit. And I remember the whole thing was so insanely stressful that I actually said to both my manager and my record label and my wife, I will never do this again. Yeah. Um, and, and here we are, I just did. Yeah, except, right. <laughs> except I just won this time. But the difference is is that, um, uh, is that I wasn't on tour. And initially, I, I was supposed to be on tour. Right. But we had to pull yet another tour, thanks to uh, our little uh, spiky viral friend. Right. Um, and I think that, like, when we had, when we were making that decision to pull the tour, which I still think was the right one, I was one of my stresses about it, and I was insanely stressed about it. Was is this going to affect the album release? Because I've never released an album and not been on tour before. It just doesn't make sense, traditionally speaking. We've we've decided to go ahead with it, and um, I have to say that it's it's quite different from making a record when you're not on tour. It's it's better in the sense that you're not trying to yeah, spin yeah. spin too many plates at the same time. I mean, it's quite weird in the sense that like I've played one show. Last week. <laughs> Right. Um, and you know that was pretty much the only like actual singing I did. All the rest of it was talking and signing stuff, um, which is all good. But it, yeah, it was a little strange. But it, you know, we're now looking at basically the record hadn't been out for a while by the time we hit the road anyway, really. And that's um, that's really cool. I'm really excited about that actually because at the very least, it hopefully gives people time to learn the words. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, I think they do. <laughs> um, <laughs> Did did you write this album primarily during lockdown? I mean, I think there's some sort of elements of that that, that leak into the lyrics, but was it mostly sure. written during shutdown, which has been um, two years now? But yeah, I would say I would say about half and half. Really, I had about ten songs in some form of readiness in at the start of 2020, and the original plan was to record the record in the summer of 2020. Um, and I was planning on writing three or four more songs and calling it a day, and um, obviously that didn't happen. And then there was a lot of time, and I wrote quite a lot more songs. I wrote twenty-eight songs in total for this record. Wow. So, um, which is that most normal? That is a lot more. I think the most yeah. I've ever written for a record before was twenty. So there was a lot of material floating around, and then not only that, but a lot of that record, a lot of that material got kind of rewritten or, or reworked, or indeed demoed in further depth. I mean, it's not a lockdown record in that it's not about lockdown. I think there's enough of those already, and I think right. that I'm I'm hoping that we're not far off a point when that will be boring as a subject matter yeah, as right, well. Right. Um, but uh, but of course it's influenced by the experience. It would be kind of insane to make a record now that wasn't influenced by it in some way that would be like making a record in 1943 that didn't mention the war i mean yeah, yeah right you know what i mean um so it, it it's a shadow cast over the record for good and ill and 
you know, the good side of it, I mean, one of the, one of the things is my lockdown hobby um, has been learning how to mix and produce and engineer records for other people, which I'm now doing quite a lot of. And, um, but that also enabled me, I didn't record any of this record myself, but it enabled me to demo in much, much greater depth and detail than I've ever been able to do before. And then I had the time to really work on that. So there was a lot more kind of preparation for this record because of lockdown than I than on any that I've done before. And I'm sitting here talking to you now thinking that maybe this was a good thing and maybe I should do that again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It seems like it worked. Uh, yeah, right. Were you able to record together? Um, like were, were things, were numbers low enough where you were able to get in the studio together yeah. at the same time? It was it was a very very odd experience recording, but one that sort of surprisingly turned out to be quite good. But essentially, so I parted ways with my long term drummer um, in 2020, sure. which is a sadness. But uh, there it is. Um, and um, basically, uh, I, I was I'd always been planning on making the record with Rich Costi, who I made Take That Cart with in 2012. And um, you know, we couldn't be in the same room because we couldn't get to other sides of the Atlantic, you know? But he, um, we, we put together a remote recording thing. So me and the other three guys from Sleeping Souls were in a studio in Oxford, UK, um, which had lots of lovely equipment and the fastest internet known to humankind. <laughs> um, and Rich was on a FaceTime call and on a, like a live audio stream from the desk. Um, and then for drumming, we had a cast of different drummers for this record. So we had Elan Rubin from Nine sure. Inch played the majority of it, but also Dom from Muse and Jason from Death Cab and um, that kind of thing. So, you know, weirdly, I've never met anyone who played drums on this record. That's strange, wild. Isn't it? Um, but so I was thinking to myself, like, how is this going to work? Is this going to be totally artificial? Is there going to be any kind of vibe or whatever? But um, actually, it was really focused. Uh, it was partly focused, I think, because I did so much preparation work. We actually basically started with the session files from my demos and just replaced the parts one by one, oh, okay. thereby, thereby keeping you know the song structures and, and arrangement and stuff largely intact, which I was really happy with because it, in a way, that gave me more control of the process somehow. Do you know what I mean? It was just like, the song goes like this, let's yeah, make yeah. it sound good. Um, but also, um, it was focused because you can't like fuck around, basically, when you're on the other side of the Atlantic, when you're 3,000 miles away. <laughs> you can't waste half a day experimenting with some weird old guitar you found in the cupboard before deciding this is a complete waste of your time. Uh, and you can't spend the morning showing some of the funny cat videos you found. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. You know, it's just like once all of the machinery is working and we're up and running and the, the live link is live and all that kind of thing, it's like, let's get the fuck on with it, you know, and record it well. Um, so, you know, it was I, I was sort of surprised, but it came good. So so just so I have the picture correct in my brain. So the the actual Rich Costi was on our side of the Atlantic. He, he's in Vermont yeah, he was or something, in, he, he was in, he? Yeah, he was in Vermont. Yeah. And we had him on a, like I say, we had a laptop on top of one of the speakers that had his face <laughs> shining back at us <laughs> the whole time. And then he also, he had a, a high quality audio stream coming out of the out of Pro Tools or whatever. And um, it was, yeah, it was funny. I mean, we had this gag about that, which in fact, now that I think about it, you were also unlikely to get. There's a quite obscure British TV show called uh, Red Dwarf. Um, that features Which a, is on PBS over here, sure. Oh, really? Have you seen yeah. it? Uh, I have seen episodes. I certainly don't watch it regularly, but I, I know a, that it exists, yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a character who is the computer on the spaceship who's called Holly, who is just a disembodied head um, that tells people what to do. And so we started calling Rich <laughs> Holly, which was funny, not least because he had no idea what we were talking about. Sure, and, yeah. um, which, of, of course, entertained us no end. So uh, Holly, he became. That's got to be... 
a difficult task for him to not be in the same room. And I say that as somebody who's been in sort of Zoom meeting purgatory for work for the better part of the last two years. Oh, of course. And and knowing how distracting everything is when you work from home and how tough it is to focus on your computer screen. That's that's a lot of work for him to even just stay focused and be a part. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things I've, uh, I think I found interesting about it, so that, as I say, this is the second record I made with Rich. I, I, I have an awful lot of love for and pride in Tape Deck Heart, but the experience of making it was pretty grueling. I felt like I was beaten up, basically. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, and part of that is that I'd never been produced by somebody at Rich's level before. Before that, I made all my records with my friends. Um, but also, I and I think I can say this without Rich violently disagreeing. <laughs> he didn't really know who I was. It was my fifth record, but I think he sort of came at it like I was some kid who just got signed. Yeah, um, yeah. And there was a bit of a sort of culture clash about that. What was really interesting and cool for me this time around is that in the intervening time, I've grown better to understand what Rich's methodology is and who he is and why he's doing what he's doing. And I think he respects me as a songwriter much more than I'm not saying he didn't respect me as a songwriter before, but like there's a kind of there is a there was much more kind of mutual respect. And I think without that, it probably wouldn't have worked. But there was a fair degree of trust on his part that I knew what I was driving at. So, um, you know, he would be on the call most of the day, but there might be a moment where it's like we need to just nail a guitar part or something and he'd check out for 20 minutes while we got it down because he knew that I was also paying very close attention to what was going on. Were you were you sort of live streaming while the drummers like Ilan were were recording their drum tracks and giving them uh, ideas or did they just essentially record to your demos or um they mostly just recorded to the demos i mean i checked in for a while um on the elan session and then kind of realized i didn't really need to um, yeah, right. he's that, a monster. That, that that dude's gonna go far Whew, he's got a bright future <laughs> um he can play the drums i mean there was a, an entertaining moment he was in la rich was in vermont and i was in london actually listening to a drum session which is mental in itself right. but um rich and i were having a sort of private chat outside of the zoom call and rich sent me a message and he said i'm gonna call social services on behalf of his snare drum i feel like, <laughs> i feel like we've passed the point of consent here um and uh you know, because he was just being he's, he's, he's a monster. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's an incredible drummer. Yeah. I, I did see in your live stream the other day, uh, the note about your, um, your new drummer, just sort of sending you sad face emojis. Yeah. I mean, the thought at my bad, maybe. Yeah, it was my bad. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Callum is an incredible drummer and actually quite a big fan of Elan's work. So he's, it's lovely actually his reaction to to the news that we weren't going to be able to figure because he still joined like halfway through the making of the record oh and, okay. it, and it was just kind of like ah we've kind of done the drums on this already and he was like oh no problem who who, who played just out of interest and i said yeah i'm ruben he said oh my god he's my favorite drummer so um that was a nice piece of serendipity you know yeah um, right but and indeed it for the record callum has absolutely knocked them all out of the park now and i can't wait to be playing them live You've obviously, you've been a songwriter who bears a lot of your soul. So I think that part is obviously consistent on this album, but it seems like you dug exceptionally deep and and touched nerves that maybe like you hadn't really done before. Um, And maybe, maybe that's one of the things that, that speak, that stands out about this album as being, in my opinion, really one of your best. I will always have a soft spot for uh, England, keep my bones because of like, how we just played it out in this house but sure, sure. this is I, I, but me too me too for yeah, the yeah. <laughs> but but i you've got songs about your family and your schooling and miranda and dealing with anxiety and not just getting but staying married in what was the first song that you wrote for this album and did that sort of dictate 
the theme of you know it just kind of diving into to all of the dirt and making that's, something out of it that's a good question actually i think i'm right in saying the first song i wrote for this record was a wave across a bay just because mm. that song kind of arrived almost fully formed um not long after scott's passing in 2018 so that's something around and there was a moment in time when i think that that might have just been a standalone single type affair um but uh, in the end, it became part of the record, and I'm happy that it did. I think that's the right. So way am I. It. Yeah. I, I guess I'm. I'm perhaps that song that felt like a good one, if I may be so bold, when I finished it. And um, I, it has a kind of um, a brutality to it, a kind of rawness to the emotional approach, which I enjoyed. And like my last two records were both kind of detours, should we say, consciously made, and of which I remain extremely proud. But there was a kind of electronic pop politics record followed by a history right. podcast album and um almost in a way those that they, they, they in retrospect they act as palate cleansers you know i had time to kind of now come back to um uh to writing more autobiographically with with some freshness uh also you know the nature of writing autobiographically is that it's quite context dependent and this is a record written at this point in my life and therefore necessarily it will be different from others i guess and then the final thing i say is that that um once again, having all the time in lockdown, it was like, you know, I was sort of considering the merits of writing some stuff about childhood. And then it was like, well, fuck it. If we're going to do this, let's actually do this. You know, let's let's yeah. really dive into this. So I, th I think we've crossed those first. I think non Servian was the second, actually. That song's been, or at least that riff has been around for a while. Which um, that, that's an interesting uh, push and pull, those two songs, if you were to play them back to back. Yeah, yeah sure, sure, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the non Servian riff was a bit of a breakthrough moment in the sense that I wrote it and immediately thought, well, that goes on the side project pile, you know, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and then thought to myself, well, why? You know, like, it's my fucking album. I can put what I want right, on it, you know. Right. Um, and uh, that was kind of cool. And I think that was the moment where it was just kind of like what everything I was saying earlier about not trying to second guess my instincts and all the rest of it. It was just like let's just let songs happen in the way that they feel like happening. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it went from there. And, and sort of, <clears throat> I think since I since I really listened to the album in full and paid attention to the lyrics once, it sort of dawned on me that uh, FTHC Frank Turner Hardcore is it's not just hardcore because of like the inspiration of the music but like the heart the lyrics are hardcore on this album yeah. too <laughs> yeah. right like this yeah, sort of I think a double that's thing a double meaning yeah. thing there well there you go there you go yeah um i mean definitely and you know the i think this is the other thing is that like you know getting older generally sucks but like one of the consolations is that um i feel you feel a bit more secure in yourself or at least that's been my my experience of it and there's definitely a sense in which um the fact of standing on slightly firmer ground as a person enables me to fish in deeper waters like i don't think i was really ready to discuss things about my childhood and, and my school in particular until now you know mm -hmm. because it's been something that i've found very awkward and i've actually gone out of my way not to talk about my yeah, yeah. right wherever possible because i hated it and because i don't want it to define me and because i think that people in their 30s talking about school is fucking lame <laughs> um but but do you know what i mean and ultimately yeah, yeah. one of the realizations for me was that me choosing not to talk about it didn't stop every other fucker talking about it and at a certain point well it's like, right well, I'm allowed to throw my two cents into this because everybody else who's discussing it is doing so with near perfect ignorance of the topic in hand. Yeah. yeah so yeah. Um, you know, uh, and I guess I just sort of noticed that because obviously you know being being sort of sent to a scholarship to a very prestigious private school or whatever um, has its overtones to do with politics and privilege, and I understand and indeed embrace all of those issues 
and agree with them and all the rest of it. But but my 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 problem was that I noticed that a lot of people were talking about it as if I had a lovely time. Yeah, yeah um, right, and, right. And it was just kind of like we can say and think whatever we like about the politics of this, but could we fucking stop talking about this? Like I enjoyed it because I really fucking didn't. You know, that's an interesting thing, and I think you're exactly right. I've seen obviously a lot of the chatter about that over the years. Uh, right. And the assumption is that you enjoyed it or that you were there by choice. Right. And right. That, well, exactly. Yeah. And you signed like a, up for it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that as a 12 year old, I went, exactly, I know what I'd right. like to do, uh, <laughs> you know, and um, so, yeah, it's it's kind of and, and it's a funny thing because it's it's a bizarre form of it's an unexpected piece of catharsis for me, just in the sense that. I, I don't read social media comments anymore or tweets or anything like that because that's generally surprised. a good idea. Yeah. But, <laughs> but the general response seems to have been a lot of people kind of going, cool, actually, I kind of feel like I get this better now. And it does seem to have put to bed some of um, the kind of easy needling that usually comes from. Yeah, yeah. One song that I, that I left out of the uh, run up to the last question was awake wave across the bay, which, mm-hmm. which you mentioned as being the first song sort of written sure. for this album. I didn't know Scott, but I was a huge fan of his work, and I'd sure. seen him seen him a couple of times. Uh, and he was one of those writers, at times, sort of like yourself, that was so heartbreakingly honest that I feel like we all felt like we knew him uh, at some level. It, was that you mentioned that that song arrived sort of fully formed? I could envision that being a hard song to write, just knowing that you had to sort of. It's a large responsibility to take on. Oh yeah, that sort yeah. of narrative. But yeah, I mean, well, the, the story with that song, which I'm, I'm I'm uncomfortable enough to have actually written it into the song itself, but essentially, you know, because I'm a rationalist, skeptic, atheist yeah, sort yeah, of dude, sure. as, as yeah. indeed was Scott, and I had what I can only describe as a lucid dream, which involved Scott showing me some chords and telling me some words, and I wrote them down when I woke up, and that was two thirds of the song, pretty much untouched. You know, I just thought. Uh, and and, and I, I kind of went out of my way not to touch it because it felt like it had sort of it had come to me in the way that it had come in the, for a reason. I mean, uh, you know, as I say, there are parts of me that are quite uncomfortable using this sort of language generally. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, yeah. And ultimately, what we're talking about here really is a, just a sort of quite extreme form of grieving. Right. But um, but I finished the song and um, uh, yeah, it, it, so it wasn't hard to write, but it was hard to then do anything with on some levels. Like, um, you know, my immediate thought was, well, this can't go into the world without some sort of input from Scott's family. Right. And um, Grant was the drummer for Frank Rabbit, Scott's brother, who I didn't really know at all um, prior to Scott's death. Um, part, of a, part of Scott and I's friendship was sort of based around the fact we didn't really have much in the way of mutual friends. And it, it, yeah, gave, yeah, us, yeah. it gave us a sort of liberty to talk about everything. Um, and so, but I got in touch with Grant and I sent him the song and he sent me the most beautiful reply in which he basically said, well, I can't listen to this. But, uh, but I but I think my brother would want you to release this. And I think that we at Fr- in Frightened Rabbit dealt in emotionally brutal music and it would be ridiculous for us to try and constrain this in any way. And, um, you know, he's uh, he's been super generous about it. And we've done those seven inches of benefit for the Tiny Changes charity as well. Right, which is wonderful. And I had a very similar reaction to Grant. Once I knew what that song was about, I said, well, I can't listen to this. It, it was hard. And I will tell you, it took me probably four or five listens before I could uh, get all the way through it without sort of these overwhelming feelings, you know, that's, it's really, really Thank powerful. Thank you. And, and, and that's not a thing that I say about a song very often <laughs> is, that, is that I couldn't listen to it because like the feelings were a little too, 
I know Ra, and I say that as somebody who, like I said, I didn't know Scott. I had certainly seen him sure. a few times and seen him by himself. I hadn't seen him with Frightened Rabbit. I saw just the Scott Hutchison thing, like by yeah, himself, yeah. and the the sort of power that that is. And I found it hard to listen to, so I could imagine that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I, there were parts of me that felt bad for sending the song over. It was like, does this make me an asshole? But at the same time, I wanted to release it. The, there's another moment that I sort of caught off guard not to insert myself into the album but i think that's one of the things that helps us relate to it but there was a there was a moment that sort of caught me off guard and that's with the last song farewell to my city and i say that not because i'm someone who ever moved out of london or or i have moved out of my old hometown and since moved out of boston but my my great-grandfather almost exactly i guess 100 years before you was from london and and i and left and came to the states instead under different circumstances but i could sort of like Obviously, the city has changed uh, quite a bit since 100 years ago, but I could envision my great-grandfather sort of walking around the city for one last time before leaving for the sure. for what yeah. he knew was the last time. It did this weird sort of thing in my brain. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, and he he traveled further than I did. I'm I'm less than two hours away from the city, so I go back pretty regularly. But it's um, I mean, the song is a breakup song to a city. You know, was the sort of intention behind it. And I definitely, when I go back to London now, I was there most of last week. Actually, it's quite a lot like having a drink with your ex. In the yeah. sense that you start the evening think, remembering why you were into them, and then you re- end the evening remembering why you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, um, but yeah, it's uh, I, it came together well, and it, like it's funny. I sort of had the idea for the song, and I had the music for the song, and I had the ending of the song, and I didn't have the prose poem for one of a less pretentious term. Um, and and I remember thinking to myself, this is going to take me a lifetime to get this right. And then uh, one day I had a meeting in town and this is when we just before we left North London and um, it's about a 40 minute public transport journey home or about a three hour walk. Mm. And I just it was a nice day. I had nothing else on. I thought, fuck it, I'll walk home. And then as I was walking, realized that I was sort of almost walking an autobiography um, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, as I went and then started writing some things down and then suddenly realized that the walk was the song and that I didn't need to use use the walk as sort of inspiration any more in any more complicated way than to just tell that story so um by the time i got home i had the finished song and that was quite satisfying what was the intent to write it sort of as the that spoken word like you said the prose poem oh yeah 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 i mean that's a the, i mean there's a there's a fair there is a thing on this record there's a kind of vocal styling which kind of harks back to the the stuff I did in Million Dead and my interest in bands like Van Pelt, who are a huge band for me. Um, and as a lot of people have noted, Hold Steady as well, who I sure. adore. Um, uh, but even, you know, Marky Smith or, or Scroobius Pip or whatever, there's there's a fair few reference points for it. But um, it's that kind of, it, it borders on spoken word in places. And it's a sound that I really like and that I haven't employed too much in my solo work. You haven't. And it's very, it's noticeable on this album. And uh I'll take that up again in another couple of questions because I have sort mm. of a thing uh, planned that turned out better than I expected. But um, <laughs> the, the but but a segue to that is sort of to talk about the legion of fans you've sort of developed over the years, oh, across the world over the last fifteen years. Uh, I can, I in recent months I've been sort of thinking about that and remembering back to like the early days of the internet because we're in our early forties. So we were sort of there for the early days of our, <laughs> yeah. it, but it, and fan clubs becoming a thing that happened online. Like I, w- I grew up a huge Pearl Jam fan. So they always had a big online fan of people who were on message boards and traded bootlegs and things like that. Mm. And, 
when did you realize that that was going on with you? And is that sort of still even like a weird thing? Oh yeah, it's definitely a weird thing. I mean, the the, the center of it in my world is this Facebook group called the Frank Turner Army. Um, We're going to talk which, about them in a second, yeah. right? Yeah, and like I'm very aware of their existence. I'm not a member of the Frank Turner Army because yeah, yeah. Jesus, Jesus Christ, right? Um, and, <laughs> and like I sort of like I feel like it's in in there's a bit of self preservation comes into this. I'm extremely grateful and flattered and blown away that it exists, but I kind of need to not think about it too much because otherwise. I just spare up my own ass. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, I just yeah, need, yeah. I need, I, it's it's great that it's there, and I, I and I am sort of blown away by it. And there are days when like I hear about people doing stuff like you know, I actually well to the point with this record, like the seven inch for Wave Across the Bay was a UK only release for various boring logistical reasons. And I know that the Frank Turner Army's turned into a bit of a kind of exchange mart for people sure. outside the UK wanting to get a hold of it, and that's super cool. I'm really really behind that i think it's lovely you know and, and just people helping each other out with places to stay around shows or tickets you know it's quite good for ticket exchanging without involving touts and it's there's a lot of good there and i'm really grateful for it but yeah i mean i don't need to actually read it myself oh sure yeah and that that is a weird there's sort of a weird bad sick analogy that i won't make to it if you were to really enjoy <laughs> reading that sort of stuff but i'm how deep into your career was it before you realized that that was sort of uh, they're they're rabid? I mean, it's, yeah. it's awesome, and I'm I'm part of that Frank Turner army. Okay, well, oh, sort excellent. of sort well, of to you. read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I, I don't know. That's a good question. I suppose uh, I suppose I would say that right from the word go, I've been aware. The English expression is to say that is to say that something is marmite. Have you come across marmite? No, that's a new Mar one. Marmite is like a breakfast spread that's kind of, it's like a salty yeast. Is it like extract. Vegemite? Exactly. Yeah, okay. that's a territory. And and their entire sort of marketing campaign for decades now has been you either love it or you hate it. And, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and that's definitely, I still sort of feel like it's been a thing with my career for reasons that I don't understand and don't trouble to try and understand because, again, that level of self-examination, I think, strikes me as unhealthy. But... um. <laughs> Uh, you know, people seem to either like adore what I do or to just not be that interested or indeed to really rapidly dislike it in a couple of instances. Yeah, right. And I, yeah, and I, and I don't really know why it is that it provokes that kind of reaction. In a way, I quite like it. I, I think that provoking a reaction full stop is a good thing to do and I'd rather be hated than be considered bland um, yeah, yeah. Uh, in a funny way. But like, yeah, the people who do like what I do seem to like really, really fucking like it and they do things like learn all the words and so on and so forth. And it's cool. And, and I mean, I noticed that sort of early on even when it was smaller numbers of people involved. I think the Frank Turner Army started around the, it was started around the Wembley show that I did 10 years ago. And um, I suppose that was the moment in time when, and then there were 10,000 members and it was just like, what the fuck? Yeah. Um, but so I guess that's the answer to your question. But like, there has always been kind of a degree to which, even early days, there were people who would come to every show on a tour or whatever. And it's kind of like, really? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. We're, we're playing the same set list, dude. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or whatever. I mean, in fact, in point of fact, we don't play the same set list. No, of course. Play, but, but um, you know, there, there might be some some continuities from one to another, should we say. And uh, I, I mean, I love it. And, and I guess ultimately the way I get my head around all this shit is that I have once or twice in my band follow bands in my life follow bands around i went to every single godspeed you black amber show they ever played in london yeah, um, yeah. Do you know what i mean and like um i i 
uh, I, I have like traveled for shows and that kind of thing. So my point being, I have a degree of that kind of fandom in myself for bands that I like. But I, I flew to New York to see Mineral play, you know, when they got back together because of course, yeah, yeah. of course you did. Um, yeah, yeah um, but so so I do get it. But but I, I in a way I have to. It whilst it is helpful to have that as a mindset to kind of understand it, I need to not think of myself in the same bracket that I think of Godspeed or Mineral or whoever else because again. Uh, that way, self-absorption lies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a weird thing to wrap your head around. I'm sure, especially as right. somebody who's done it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just I don't. Yeah, I don't need to sit here and think. Yeah, I'm like fucking Henry Rollins. You know what I mean? That's, yeah, exactly. that's a ridiculous, a ridiculous way of being. So, so speaking of those things, one uh, to sort of wrap up. I could talk to you for hours and hours, but I'd also like to be uh, mindful of your time and your hangover. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's very generous. But uh, it's Saturday morning. Well, here it's Saturday morning. Oh, yeah, it's Saturday afternoon where you are. But it is. I was thinking, wow, 10 o'clock in the morning, and he got up to do an interview the day after a number one record. <laughs> but Oh, yeah, no, it's 3 o'clock. Uh, but speaking of those fans, so on the Frank Turner Armour um, message board on Facebook the other day, shout out to those people. I posted a hypothetical question that – knowing that this interview was coming down the pike that if hypothetically there was anything you wanted to know that hasn't been asked or whatever, I want to rapid fire a couple of them at you. And boy, do they run, boy, do they run a gamut? Um, Yeah, I I can imagine, but yeah, I'm ready. I'll try and keep this brief. (laughs) You've you've already sort of answered uh, one of them because somebody was asking about the sort of poetic spoken word type approach. And do you have any favorites? You've already kind of answered that one, which is. Yeah, I mean, just to reemphasize, I mean, uh, the biggest influence on that level for me is a band called Van Pelt, um, the Van Pelt, who were a New Jersey kind of emo slash post punk band from the 90s who. who uh, the singer is a guy called Chris Leo, who's Ted Leo's brother. Oh, um, sure, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. They put out a record called Sultans of Sentiment in um, about '98 or so. That remains one of my absolutely all-time favorite records, and um, and that was a huge influence on Million Dead. Um, and so I, I, I think that there's a common thread between there's there's common DNA between the last song and the first Million Dead record, which is called The Rise and Fall, and Between Farewell to My City. There's there's some common ground there um, uh, for people to examine at their leisure. Um, next up, uh, why leave Zeitbeast in the house I was raised off of the standard album? Is it because they're less like the others, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, track listing is always a nightmare, and I've quite famously got it wrong once or twice. Balthazar and Pizarro <laughs> should have been on England, keep my bones. What the fuck right. is wrong with me? <laughs> so on and so forth. I mean, you know, but there are directives. I mean, I'm trying to sort of curate a holistic body of work. I do want the album proper to be kind of like concise in a way, particularly given this is a quote unquote punk record. Uh, you know, I, I wanted it to be kind of less than 45 minutes, should we say. The Zeitbeast just, I, I adore that song, but it felt very sort of like tonally different from the rest of the record. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. And and therefore, I'm not saying it not being on the album proper doesn't mean we're never going to play it, I guess is what I would say. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it didn't quite fit. And then House I Was Raised is kind of tonally in the right territory, but it was musically in the wrong territory for me. Not the wrong territory, but it was just like yeah. that whole thing of like, oh, every song's every record's going to have one acoustic song on it. It's just like... <laughs> It right. doesn't have to, like right. whatever. <laughs> um, it's worth noting for the record that Tarrant, my bass player, thinks I'm the biggest idiot in the world for not putting House Warriors Raised on the album proper um, uh, and is like militantly up in arms about it. My theory about that is it's just another song on which he gets a break because there's no bass on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the sort of... Uh, 
during the Lucero show when Ben Nichols just plays by himself. Yeah, for a while. it's the it's, so it's the band's uh, scheduled union break. Exactly. <laughs> um, another one. You've done a lot to help struggling venues and record stores, but have you given thought to helping struggling bands open for you on tour because somebody has uh, probably wanted to plug their own band? But <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, well, it's a difficult one because, like, I mean, you know, I, I mean, first of all, pandemic aside, like, I do my best yeah, to yeah. like help out upcoming bands mainly because people did that for me um, and, yeah. and also and also because i'd like to curate a good bill for a show i don't want people to have to suffer through two bands who are shit who bought yeah, onto yeah. the bill or something right. so, i mean i'd like them to see bands that at least i think are a killer um i mean you know it's a difficult one it's it's slightly different running a venue and all of the sunk costs and, and outgoings that go into that and being in a band those are slightly different things sure um i have to say one of the to be specific i, I was slightly one of the things that made the decision to pull the tour in the UK at the start of this year so difficult was that I was aware that a lot of the guys in Pet Needs had jacked in their jobs because they were, we were about to start this enormous tour schedule together. Yeah, yeah. And then we pulled the tour and I felt awful about that and um, had some long conversations with those guys. But I mean, they're, they're dear friends. In fact, funnily enough, they are part of the reason I have a hangover today. So, <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, I, I do what I can, but like uh, it, it's slightly different to me, a band and then like a business. like a Oh, sure. Speaking of pet needs, they came up in the following question. Uh, mm. How many pet needs hoodies do you actually own? One. <laughs> God damn it. One. I just don't wash my clothes that often during album release week. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> but then uh, that's the other thing. I also own like like a washing machine. Do you know what I mean? It's like I do also wash. Some people are like, man, you wear that T-shirt all the time. It's like, yeah, and I wash it in between. Jesus Christ. Anyway, round over. Yeah, no. So I've, I've done a bunch of these uh, with the video on, and I used to do them over Instagram Live. And... Mm. I had to be mindful of not wearing the same shirt or the same, like, you know, and then, and then I started to get, well, that's weird. Like I do laundry. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, it is a thing. If I record an episode in April and another one in November, and I happen to be wearing the same shirt, I did wash it in the seven months between. Right. Exactly. I'm not sure that says very much about anything really. Exactly. Um, uh, will, here's a loaded one. Uh, will society, will society accept, or sorry, are you uh, hopeful that society will accept trans rights as human rights? And how can allies help to uh, advance that? Um, I mean, to answer two parts there, I mean, for yeah. part one, yes, I mean, evidently so. Um, uh, it's an interesting moment in time, actually, because like in my bubble, and we all exist in bubbles, in my bubble, it's not really something that has a huge amount of debate around it. I don't really know anybody who's like opposed conceptually to trans rights. That right. said, that demonstrates the fact that I live in a bubble because <laughs> exactly. these, yeah. these people do exist. And like, you know, you do, everybody has those moments when you peek out of your bubble and you realize that that's not the case everywhere, particularly not outside, um, you know, the West, should we say, more right. broadly speaking. And so there's clearly work to be done there. In terms of being an ally, I suspect I'm the wrong person to ask um, because, you know, I'm no expert on this kind of thing. I think that... Um, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, in, in your personal interactions and stuff, trying to be a decent human being, trying to kind of embody the values that you believe in and all those kinds of things are important. I mean, you know, there's a part of me that feels quite strongly like the issue of trans rights, like so many of these things, is just about decency, ultimately. Sure. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and I do my best on that level, probably with with vast gaping failings like anybody else. But, <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, I suspect that the... I don't think that the world needs me to be the person leading the conversation about trans rights, you know, um, because that's not my experience. Um, I, I, my experience is to have a trans family member and a bunch of trans friends as well. Um, and I listen to them. And I think, you know, this is 
as with all these things, it's like I, I'm not the person who should be leading this conversation. You know, yeah. uh, what I would like to do is kind of create space and and time and platforms for people who can talk about this with knowledge. Um, in specifically, you know, we work and, and pointedly for the question in hand, I do a lot of work with the Ally Coalition, you right. know, and. Um, what I that seems to work to me because I, ultimately I'm providing a platform for them to speak with knowledge about the subject at hand, and you know then I get it the fuck out of the way and yeah, shut yeah. up. Basically, that, I I think that that is probably the best answer for for guys like us for middle class white yeah. like listen yeah, totally. and shut the fuck up and get yeah out just of the way. just just stop trying to fucking it's just like oh feminism's and now cool well here's what I think about feminism it's like yeah. stop talking for the love of God right. um, <laughs> do you know what I mean like so you know at the same time I mean obviously somebody somewhere is now going to make a snarky comment about no man's land but, I mean for the record uh, there were people who had issues about me choosing that subject matter I get that uh, on some levels I guess ultimately it was just kind of like I'm going to make another album would you like it to be about this or would you like it to be about men's history we can do that too if you really fucking want but that seems like a waste of my time um that also uh, seems like every other album well but but exactly you know and it's like ultimately the end the the upshot of that record was that i was lucky enough to be part of a number of illuminating conversations both for myself and for other people um on a subject that doesn't get talked about enough and that seemed like a not terrible use of my time yeah no i thought that was an interesting concept and i think that a thing that like we said, sort of people like us uh, can do is amplify other voices and tell other stories. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. Totally. But it was, it was interesting. Like one, one of the criticisms of No Man's Land that I read was somebody was like, I mean, like he sings on every song and it was like, I mean, it's my fucking album. Like, what, <laughs> what, what, what were you expecting? Right? Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, yes, I did. I mean, is that a problem for you? I don't know. Fuck it. Let's not go too far down this rabbit hole. We'll be here all day. Yeah, to to uh, lighten things up, uh, I believe a question about your cat. Uh, are you worried? That, <laughs> are you worried that Bode? Boy, this one is uh, in the weeds. Uh, are you worried that Bode cat will take after their namesake and raise Colchester to the ground now that they are <laughs> now that they are so much closer? I will admit. That is a reference. That, 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 is, that is that is well. So basically, Boudicca is named after Boudicca, who is the queen of the Arsini tribe. Who um, were she famously? I mean, this is I, probably slightly apocryphal on some levels, but the story goes that she her husband was a chieftain who got killed by the Romans, and she rose in rebellion after this and burned the city of Colchester, which I live near, which was the first <laughs> city in England to the ground in protest against the treatment of her, her family. <laughs> Um, there's more to it than that, but that's the yeah, yeah. outline. Um, I suspect, like most cats, if my cat could burn cities to the ground, she would. Um, but uh, she's generally confused by matches. So, um, uh, <laughs> thank God I for think, no no opposable thumbs. Yeah, well, there we go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think she would if she could. Yeah, yeah right. Um, and last but not least, there's a lot of people who want to know if you're going to go on tour, play festivals this summer. Da, da, yeah. da. Obviously, well, that'll come uh, in time. But Yeah, can I ask you a question? When is this podcast going out? Oh, let's say Monday, probably. Okay. Okay, cool. In which case, there's an enormous announcement coming tomorrow morning. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, Tuesday morning. Yeah, Tuesday morning. We're the, and, and not for everywhere in the world, but we, we are we're kind of laying the track right now, if you know what I mean. Um, sure. And uh, uh, that we are going to talk everywhere properly, I promise. I mean, you know, despite the sort of slightly um, dislocated way in which this record was made, as far as I'm concerned, it is obviously designed to be played live. Oh, of um, course. And, uh, you know, it is my 
it's it's interesting again this whole thing of sort of promoting a record when you're not on tour and making it in the lockdown everything being slightly different quite often at this point in an album cycle i'm at least beginning to start thinking ahead to the next rise you know and what the next record might be and all the rest of it and i'm not really doing that right now because i haven't even begun to do this record justice um right. and i want to tour it hard i want to spend uh, an awful lot of the next two to three years touring this album around the world and i'm very excited about it excited for tuesday morning now um uh yeah and so i guess then the last one will be will you please give Boudicat extra scratches that's obviously uh i thought that was a, um, a nice request so I thought yeah I'd if i can in. if i can find her i will um <laughs> uh, i don't know where she is right now or has the Zeitbeast uh, been given a clarinet teacher yet? I thought that was, <laughs> I thought that was funny. I you know, it's funny. Well, a number of people have protested the idea that there's no cool clarinet music out there, um, but not really with any like effectiveness. Yeah. <laughs> that's far. I mean, somebody mentioned Akabilk, and I was like, fucking really? Um, uh, so. It's uh, not so a cool sounding instrument. Just, yeah, I mean, I, it, it could be. And like, it is entirely likely that there is a vast swathe of cool clarinet music, which I'm just too ignorant to know about but it has yet to be effectively pointed out to me it's not from a recent century i don't think uh sure <laughs> uh, thank you for doing this i won't take up your whole afternoon this was uh, a lot of fun like i said you've always been thank you man uh you've always been gracious both uh for me as a person and for us at dying scene and to my friends in rebuilder they're they're uh oh what a what a what a bunch of guys they're so cool that lot. i love them and if it, if the video were on, I would hold up the album FTHC. People should go get it. Obviously, most of UK has it already. I think it officially came out <laughs> in uh, in the US yesterday because my local record store only got them yesterday to put out on. Right. Sale. Okay. Cool. Excellent. Well, off off you go, folks. Uh, yeah, exactly. Get involved and, go and go buy it, and we'll, yeah. we'll push the charts in this country too. I don't even know well, what that looks like anymore. And nor do I. Um, but uh, I'm excited to to be back over. Um, and yeah, tomorrow morning, keep the eyes well, peeled. Yeah, awesome. Thank you.